Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. And all the big good movies. I mean... All the big good ones. There's some big bad ones, too, but... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, we're in it. Yes. We're in the heat of it. This week, so... Well, I guess I should say, so next week, I think, is is, uh, Gods and Kings... Uh, what else? By the gun. By the gun. Harvey Keitel. Mm. Nothing. No. Nicholas Cage, your favorite, Dying of the Light. That's that's this weekend. I mean, that's like right now. I'm not going to see it, but I'm surprised that you are even doing this show with me because you should be in line. I I know I I am in line. I'm recording from line. <laughs> <laughs> this is very serial of you. Yeah, I know. You know what else is next week? <laughs> Tell me. You should be excited. What? Inherent Vice. Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie. I, I think I am excited about that. We saw the, uh, we watched the trailer that one. I got very excited about it. Yeah, it looks very interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, we have mutual excitement. Yeah. Uh, you haven't done anything good good with yourself this week, have you? Is that what you're saying? You've got no good stories? I've done nothing good with myself. Hmm. Just bad. Mm-hmm. Is it a busy production time for you? Like, does does do things slow down in December, or is this just more Excel spreadsheets? It, you know, it depends. Um, you do get those those uh, companies who are in that end of year panic, uh, trying to get stuff done before uh, the end of the year hits, and also before the holidays hit. So there's definitely some of that going on. Hmm. Yeah, everything slows way down for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you if you ever need to talk. <laughs> You've got time. Let's tell the people where we're from. <laughs> where are we from? Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is The Next Reel. I'm Pete Wright. That there is Andy Nelson. Hey! And we spoil movies. And uh, thank you for joining us. Happy holidays from Hearth and Home and Kith and Kin and and uh, all that rot. Uh, before we get into the movie of the evening, you need to go uh, learn a little bit more about us at thenextreel.com. You can catch up with all of our old shows and, and uh, see where we're coming, uh, what, what shows are coming up. Uh, if you jump over to Letterboxd, you can see our, our upcoming movie list for uh, all of, really, the first half of 2015. Uh, yeah. Which, yeah, we banked that. So um, you start watching movies so you can keep up with what we are talking about each week. And you can join us on all the social platforms pretty much at the next reel, everywhere. And while you are there, you should hang out for the Instagram hashtag guest movie hashtag pony prize hashtag um, standy versus the people hashtag uh, contests are fun <laughs> <laughs> hashtag out of hashtags uh, guest the movie challenge. Uh, How did we do this week? I think you need a hashtag. Wee. 
<laughs> uh, we did good. Well, you know, the, the players did good. <laughs> you know, it was... Uh, I, I will say, looking at the images, I had no idea what they were from because you know I haven't seen the movie. It was actually blow up, and uh, it took two images before uh, a new a newcomer to the game, Paz Malti, ended Ooh. up uh, yeah, ended up figuring it out, nailing it on the second image in. So, uh, congratulations to Paz Malti. You are entered to win the pony prize. Wow, I know. Get this some newcomers bl- blow and challenge up. it. Blow up, yeah, it's uh, Antonioni's. Oh, I haven't seen that either. Yeah. Oh, there he goes. Mm-hmm. Encyclopedia, encyclopedia, <laughs> encyclopedia has come out. That's right. Man, that guy's seen a lot of movies. Yeah. Well, we're, we're trying to bring the Kraken out. He did. He tried. Man, really bringing the A game to. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, one of the listeners did too. That's right. <laughs> The A or game, capital A game. <laughs> uh, fantastic! So um, entered into the big uh, the big prize coming soon. We're going to be talking yes. more about this. Stay yes, tuned. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And with that, let's do trailers. All right, you want to go first? I think you should go first. I'm pretty excited for this one. I'm excited too. This looks really cool. <laughs> it looks really uh, cool. It's the same yeah. feeling. Okay, you go first. Go, go. I'm not going to interrupt. This is your time. It's your show. You have the floor. No, really, you should go. But the, I'm just really just, excited just, about it. I just want to. Just, uh, <sighs> no, this is, the movie is Comet, and it's actually coming out uh, now. It's coming out to like. December fifth, it's opening. So, uh, so go see it because it's opening up right now. <laughs> Put the show away <laughs> and watch the movie. You may uh, be no, in the movie right now. You may be watching it, listening to us. That's okay. I do that too. I podcast film. <laughs> but this is a, a new romantic uh, comedy, romantic romance, maybe um, film with Justin Long, who's been. Popping up in a lot of interesting little films lately, and Emmy Rossum, and it looks really interesting. I don't uh, know fully. I mean, it says it's set in a parallel universe, and it looks. Uh, what it says is, Comet bounces back and forth over the course of an unlikely but perfectly paired couple's six-year relationship. And there is something about the the uh, the way that the movie is bouncing back and forth between the uh the couple and just the way they interact with each other that I really like that draws me in and uh it has kind of that 500 days of summer vibe and so I I really kind of tapped into this one I really want to see it but the thing that I think uh just really struck a chord with me watching it was the really interesting color palette um throughout the trailer it, it's not necessarily uh just the environment and stuff like that but it's almost like the the way they did uh, almost like a digital uh, uh, you know, just like we were talking about with uh, our, our last uh, um, uh, Coen Brothers movie, they uh, went in and digitally uh, reworked the colors so that there's interesting tones coming across in the sky and everything. And so they really played around with it, and it looks really cool. This is uh, Sam Ishmael uh, directing this, and um, I don't uh, not seen anything else of his. It's mostly been just really short stuff and. 
and uh, uh, like he did a, a documentary for HBO and stuff. So not a whole lot. This looks like his first big, uh, big feature, and I'm quite excited to see this one. I am too. I think it looks. <laughs> I think it looks so great. It's not even. It's like a five hundred days of summer. It's like an eternal sunshine of the spotless mind vibe. It's like all of that. The other thing I think is really interesting, and I don't know what they ended up doing here, but it looks like the framing is all off. So you know, you get kind of partial scenes, uh, mostly with you know, you, you end up seeing like one of the actors' heads, uh, and it'll be as as if somebody kicked the tripod or something. You know, it's a, it ends up being a really interesting look uh, to the trailer. It gets me just really excited for this film. It looks really visually um, compelling. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Do you know what I'm doing? I do know what you're doing. You're doing the title title crawl. I'm so excited for this movie. I'm excited more for your trailer than for my trailer. I think it's fair to say. This is this is it. It is the only trailer. So this is the one, one true trailer. Uh, of course, we are talking about um, uh, Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. A teaser hit last week, immediately uh, after our show, uh, and so we did not have time to talk about it. And so it's now a week old. It is aged, and we feel darn terrible about that. Uh, but that's okay because it's given me the opportunity to watch it ten thousand and five times. Yeah. And I'm watching it ten thousand and sixth right now, <laughs> right this very second. <laughs> uh, did it give you chills and maybe a, a bit of cold sweat? Uh, you know, I don't know if it gave me chills or a cold sweat, but I will say it did put a big honking smile on my face. Yeah, it did. What part was the smiliest? Just the very first thing that happened. I was just like, oh. <laughs> it's very, like just the first thing. It's just like I, you know, it just it took me back. Uh, to I you know I would say it took me back to that Star Wars excitement that I I used to feel pre Episode One when I first saw the Episode One trailer because that trailer was pretty darn good I I really enjoyed everything going on in that trailer it was very mysterious it didn't give us any sense of the story and it just it was, was beautiful great, it was yeah. really lovely yeah and this does the same thing and um uh, you know knowing the films that Abrams has, has brought us in the past, I, I feel like seeing this, like, okay, I feel, I feel good now. The hope is coming out of the closet. I know just a little bit. The door cracked open. The door cracked open. I'm so excited. Okay. I, um, you know, it brings so many questions. Why are there still stormtroopers? Uh, what is going on with the um, with uh, them still being on Tatooine? Everything's so dirty, just like it was. <laughs> Nothing. Nobody has cleaned in thirty years. <laughs> uh, but I'm telling you, when that Millennium Falcon takes off and they do the flippity do, and it comes back around and flies past the Tie Fighters, uh, that's when the man chills hit. I was just I was sitting up in in my seat. I was yes. pretty. I was pretty excited because that's how I used to play with my Millennium Falcon. I used to <laughs> swing it up and around in impossible ways, and my face was always right behind it, just like it was in the trailer. It's like he was sitting in my room, J.J. Abrams, watching me play with this wow. with my Millennium. It was amazing. Uh, what's your take on the new lightsaber? 
Uh, you know, it's it's funny because I've seen a lot of uh, people commenting about like why would they design the the uh, cross <laughs> whatever the, the cross, cross guard, guard cross guard like yeah. that where they're just going to cut their own hand off and you know a lot of that sort of thing. But yeah. a, a lot of people saying I want I think the Jedi should de- design everything because they make it all look so much cooler. Uh, so, <laughs> and I kind of side with that one. I mean, I was pretty excited about the 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 two sided. Uh, blade i was uh, uh <laughs> equally excited by seeing this one and okay it may be a design flaw but you know they're using the force i have a sense that that they're gonna not let those cross guards um, poke their knuckles i don't care what the killjoys say they don't have <laughs> joy in their lives <laughs> i uh i absolutely <laughs> absolutely loved it and i love it mostly because of the timing right the main blade goes out and then and then the little ones come out of the side it's just it's just perfect but it is made so much more perfect when you watch the special edition uh george lucas re-release of the star wars (laughs) force awakens trailer have you seen that one I haven't seen that one yet, but I, I saw that it was out there. I just haven't watched it. It is brilliant because it, of course, as as you might expect, adds a bunch of CG, like totally right. inappropriate uh, <laughs> CG into the thing. But when it gets to that sequence and he lights a lightsaber that once again, in perfect timing, main blade, little tiny blades, then the back blade comes out and two more cross guard blades. <laughs> just this, this incredible <laughs> phantasm of, of lightsaber blades. It's the awesome. most dangerous weapon just got even obs- just obscenely dangerous. <laughs> uh, it is, um, uh, it's really fantastic. So I'm very much excited for this film. J.J. Abrams written, written and directed, uh, starring uh, everyone that we love and more people we don't know but will love, uh, comes out, sadly, December 18th, 2015. It is so far away. So far away. Oh. Uh, that's okay. Wow. That's my trailer. Beat, beat that, punk. So, hey, Pete, are we in Arizona yet? Andy, if you ask me that one more time, I'm going to beat you to death. Sit back and relax and enjoy life, huh? Life is short. So are you. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Alice doesn't live any of those places anymore because when they start closing in, Alice hits the highway. We ain't hiring no waitresses. I'm not a waitress, I'm a singer. You wouldn't want no singer. Oh, T, sure. Did you decide what you want for breakfast? First, I want a big smile. Do do you want eggs? Yeah, ham and eggs. Ham and eggs. Okay, how do you want your eggs? Everybody, listen. We got us here a new girl. And her name is Alice. And today is her first day on the job. And Mel here says that she was a singer. How about them apples? But hands off, let the girl do her work. If there's gonna be any around here, grab mine, Steve. You look, but don't you touch. Would you mind uh, turning around for me? Turn around for you, why? I wanna look at you. Well, look at my face, I don't sing with my I'm not a waitress, I'm a singer. I want to sing. I want to be a singer. I'm a singer. I am a singer. I am a singer. I am a singer. I am a singer. 
I want you and Tommy with me. What the hell do you want? Oh, David, you just don't understand. You could be happy here. Oh, sure, sure. But I'm not going to let anybody stop me this time. Who's stopping you? Alice doesn't live here anymore, Andy. I know, I know. Time for our Ellen Burstyn series to kick off. 1974. What a strange movie this is. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, didn't you find your experience of watching this movie is very strange? I don't think so, and maybe that's because I had seen it not too long ago, so I remembered it pretty well. And hmm. so... Uh, and wh- why? Why Why, why had you seen it not very long ago? What were you doing that would have you watching this movie not very long ago? Just trying to catch up on... on uh, I think I was just catching up on some of my Scorsese's that I hadn't seen in a while. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'll buy that. This is not one of my um, one of my shelf films. No, nope. it's not one I come back to. Uh, you know, often. It's been years since I've seen it, and and I don't remember having this reaction uh, about the film the last time I saw it. This time, I found it so wildly out of step with my cultural reality, how I relate to women, how I relate to children. Uh, that I I found it really difficult to to wrap my head around. Hmm. Interesting. And yet, I still I think it's a great movie, and we'll talk about. It. I mean, I really do. I I think this is a great movie, but it's one that that I had I had trouble relating to, and I feel in that respect sort of ill equipped to to talk about some of the more important issues at work in this in this film. So, gotcha. Your turn. Okay. I uh, I really I do like this film quite a bit. It's not a film that uh, I I end up returning to that often, um, but I do like it. For me, it, it's a film that really fits the the seventies, uh, kind of the naturalistic tone that came out of a lot of films uh, as people were trying to get away from the Hollywood machine that had been cranking out a lot of uh, films that had more artifice in them, and this one really fits kind of the, the, the world of the Cassavetes films and um, even like uh, uh, The Last Picture Show, which um, Ellen Burstyn had also been in. And it, it, uh, it, it just seems to be of the era, and it worked really well. It works really well for a film from that era. Um, I think, for me, that this film still really works well uh, today. I, I feel that there may be some elements that I don't connect to. I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I don't connect with necessarily this uh, this mother and her relationship with her son and kind of this world that she's in um, because there are, like you said, there's, there's parenting uh, differences that we may have, uh, relationship differences that we may have, all of that. Um, I totally see all of that. But what I love about this film is even though I don't agree with some of the, the ways that people are doing things, um, they all feel real to me. Like I, I watch this film and it feels like um, Scorsese and Ellen Burstyn and Chris Christopherson and, and uh, Robert Getchell, the screenwriter, everyone really tapped into this idea of, I think Scorsese worded it well uh, when he said, people behaving the way people behave. Yes. Yeah, I, you know, I agree with that. And I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things I like most about it. I watched this with my wife who didn't like the film at all. 
uh, she she had a, a really difficult time sort of getting through it and found it just didn't have a, a you know a, a story that kind of drew her in and I found that interesting and I, I you know I think I think I had a similar reaction to the film but the story is not what I, I think uh, I needed to draw me in I think one of the things that is that is so compelling about this film is watching in particular Ellen Burstyn work uh, and and in her effort to portray. Uh, this incredibly um, honest version of uh, a you know a, a woman in the 1970s dealing with um, the loss of her husband, her abusive husband, and then her journey, her sort of psychosocial sexual journey um, across the Southwest as she tries to figure out what her problem is with men. She tries to figure out what, you know, tries to wake up. I mean, this is very much a film about awakenings. Um, and, and as she wakes up to to her own sort of power and her own journey, uh, and as she, as she discovers a new sort of, um, uh, sit, wakes up to a new sort of sisterhood, I don't mean to sort of demean it uh, like that, but a new sort of sisterhood amongst these, um, the, the waitresses and the crew at, at the diner. Uh, I find that journey really compelling, and and I find her in particular um, it, it just a a riveting character actress to watch, um, and 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 so that that holds me for the film. That holds me for the film. I just feel like um, you know so much about her journey. This is really reads when you hear her talk about. Um, you know what she is so interested in, and what why she was so interested in this film. Uh, it, it is very much because it it in so many ways paralleled her own uh, journey as a as a woman, not just as an actress. And, and I think that is um, uh, it. It makes for a really interesting kind of expose on the time. Yeah, absolutely. Coming into it as. Uh, somebody kind of from the the women's movement, uh, so to speak. You know, she was big into uh, that uh, at at the time in the late '60s, early '70s. It was kind of going on then. And I mean, she said, you know, this actually our our series is a little mixed up because technically this came after The Exorcist, but this is kind of uh, you know this is her uh, big Oscar winning film. So we ended up starting with this one. And then we'll jump backward. Because of The Exorcist, the studio head at Warner Brothers wanted to do another project with her. And so brought her in and and said, you know, what do you want to do? She looked through a lot of scripts. And as she said, it was a lot of, uh, um, you know, the just kind of the old, uh, the, the roles of the wife, roles of the whore, uh, roles of the mother. Nothing that... Um, jumped out at her as being an interesting role for her to play. And um, and then she ended up, uh, she somehow came across Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, the script, and thought that that would be something that would work really well for her. It, it was actually a script that was about um, a woman trying to make her place in the world. And so she... Uh, jumped at the chance to do this one. And then it, it's interesting. I mean, she talks about how essentially she was almost like an executive producer on this film, even though she, um, and I guess she turned down the credit uh, to get that, but certainly was acting as such. So she actually helped bring Scorsese on as the director. She was trying to find a young uh, director with fresh ideas and uh, and talked to Francis Ford Coppola, actually. And he said, oh, you should check out this movie, Mean Streets. 
and so she looked at it and was like, oh, that's the that's the vibe that I want in this, that he's kind of got that grittiness and uh, thought that he would be able to tell this story because I guess this, the script as it was, it worked, but it also had a little bit of that, um, the Hollywoodized version of kind of the relationship and everything. And, it, you know, it, it had more of that happy ending uh cliche at the end and everything and so she thought that bringing scorsese on would help ground it a little bit and that really is what um uh, she brought to the table for this film was trying to find a way to make a, this this particular story feel more real and and have a better sense to it and i think um yes it is a film uh, about a woman it's a you know it's a you know a woman's film whatever you want to call it but it really it's about just it's a person like you said it's about an awakening and that's I, it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman this is a, a film about this woman who happened to be in a relationship where she I mean let's face it if her husband didn't die she would probably never have divorced him I mean she was just kind of blindly go, going along in this bad relationship and uh, not. Um, just not not living the life that she planned on as a child. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you, but I I I don't agree that that uh, you know it's uh, that that it's well I I should say I mean I I agree with you across most of these points, but I think it really is important that this is a film about this. Uh, this gender awakening, right? I think the the importance of understanding this film really comes with um, kind of understanding what was going on at the time in terms of um, this the sexual revolution and the fact that this was this film hits sort of early in this in this kind of cultural awakening and the fact that that this deals so kind of openly with uh, you know uh, with physical abuse and. And the terror that comes in those relationships and does so repeatedly throughout the film um, in a way that that, you know, works to or serves to to make a very clear point uh, that and, and that's what I say. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm not saying that that, uh, you know, we can't understand it at all. But the fact that that's what I don't connect with, because I think so many years for me, at least culturally have passed. Um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in that sort of a household. I don't, I never saw that sort of relationship. I never saw that, that sort of abuse, which I know still happens, but this film documents it as in, in a way that, that I think was, um, was particularly, I don't know, gritty, prescient, um, and, and maybe more powerful if, if I had seen it at the time. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I really, I you know, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but I think it's a it's a powerful statement about an issue that that uh, I I think we're far enough removed from that it's it's tough to really get the weight of it. Yeah, yeah, I I can agree with that. Although at the same time, uh, you know, I I think you remove yourself from the uh, the the time and everything that's going on there. I still think, like you just said. This is something that there are people out there who still, uh, yeah. there are women who are still dealing with this sort of relationship. And I think you could transplant this story to today, and I think it's completely a story that could happen today still. Yeah, you know, I, I'll give you that. 
I think it. I you know I think you're probably right. Just in in talking about it, I guess I'm. I you know it's more of an, less of an issue of the time than of my connection with it, uh, with these with with this particular angle of the film with documenting abuse. I I just have a um, a hard time seeing it and understanding it. Yeah, uh, sure. So, um, but but the same goes with the relationship with her with her uh, her son and and with. Uh, you know, there's this sort of underlying theme of physical discipline of corporal punishment uh, in the film, and um, you know her how her relationship with her son, um, which is you know the most candid relationship, male fem- female relationship in the film, <laughs> right? Right, um, is you know how that contrasts with these other. Men, in particular, Chris Christopherson's role, who um, move in to discipline the boy. How'd that hit you? Yeah, that's well. <laughs> did you say? Did you go to your wife and you say, "You know what we need in our family? A little bit more of that Chris Christopherson." That's right. Bring on the Chris. <laughs> <laughs> that old Christopherson magic. <laughs> the um, no, it's. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I it, it really boils down to to watching other parents discipline their children. Yes, and as a parent, I mean, it's always one of those things where it's like, well, I wouldn't handle it that way. <laughs> you know, you kind of mumble that under your breath yeah. as you see, you know, somebody in the grocery store doing something, or you know, <laughs> it just this right. is one of those movies where I'm like, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I agree with her parenting completely, but. You know, she's trying, and uh, you know, I I just didn't agree with some of the the choices that she made, and also the fact that uh, the big uh, blow up between these two revolves around disciplining the son, uh-huh. who who frankly needed it. I mean, he he is a little snot, and uh, he you know he's an obnoxious character, and that's kind of the nature of of. Uh, the role as they chose to depict him. But that's what was so interesting about it, right? Is the fact that she, her candid relationship with him in so many ways cultivated his annoyingness. So this is the problem. This is probably the problem that I have with the film is that it, the, the big blow up of their relationship revolves around the fact that he disciplined her son and she is upset that he did. And yes, I can see that in a new relationship. You know, you kind of need to talk about discipline and all that before you jump in and do it. But at the same time, it's like this kid needed some disciplining. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just, uh, I probably would have disciplined him as well. I mean, he's, uh, uh, he was a little brat and that's, that's how they, they cast him to be that way. And, and, uh, um, I don't know. I just I I feel like if that's the if that was the catalyst that they that they opted to go with in this moment of this near breakup in this relationship, uh, it it um, it just didn't um, make it as strong for me because it was a situation where I um, I could see why he would do that, you know. I well I know I can see it but I but that sequence to me was one of the more believable scenes in the film. I mean I No, I, I I'm not yeah, I'm saying I really connected with it. I, I really connected with it because uh I think that uh you know they they built a great case for her 
sort of instant bout of protection, right? Yeah, I guess you're right. Because I think, you know, she has had such trouble with men in general, but not the same level of trouble with her son. Uh, She did have, you know, there is... You know, one of the things I think they play very well in her relationship with him through the course of the film, particularly through the course of their road trip, is this relationship where you see a very honest sense of frustration that she experiences. She, she, you know, she'll, when she goes crazy, she tells him, you are annoying me. You know, you're, she's, she's really very candid with him in ways that I don't know that I would be candid in quite the same kind of sense of language. Uh, but, but she really does. And then as these other men, as she is is working to sort of you can watch her kind of puzzling through why am i do i keep coming into these weird abusive relationships from one abusive verbally abusive relationship to now a physically abusive relationship with a married man who is abusive in a whole new sort of psychopathy uh once she gets witness to chris christopherson and he didn't just discipline the kid right i mean he he spanked him hard enough that the kid hit the ground, right? I mean, now, I, I don't know. I've, I've read a case where it, it looks like the kid was sort of uh, playing into it and threw himself on the ground, whatever you want to believe. For me, it was he hit the kid hard enough that he fell on the ground, through, you know, hit the table, and um, that was a, a much more dramatic demonstration of discipline than likely the kid needed. He was being a snot, but there are other ways to handle it. And her response to that, I think, was a response not to that incident in specifically, but to all of the incidences of abuse that we have witnessed in the film to that point. And I think that makes uh, that makes it a really powerful example of her coming to terms with uh, with protecting herself, protecting her son, protecting her new family unit uh, from an interloper who, you know— hadn't earned the right to do what he did at that point. That's my case. That's good. Did I sway you? I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Forget what I said. Daddy likes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, my work is done on that point. Now, from there on, though, uh, how do you feel about uh, the, the way the movie sort of cruises toward the end? That's, I think, my favorite part of the movie is the ending. Um, I, uh, I, it's, it's. I mean, it. It's one of those endings that kind of hits me, and I almost have to go back and watch it again because I'm like, oh, that was the ending. Um, it, it just comes really quickly, and um, but it fits really well, and I actually really like the way that it ends up working. You know, she's on this uh, this mission to get to Monterey. Um, she starts in uh, Socorro, New Mexico, works her way to Phoenix, where she gets into one bad relationship, clearly doesn't know how to read a map, because instead of continuing on to California, she goes down to Tucson. She turns around. Uh, she, I, I'm really <laughs> confused by why she goes to Tucson, but hey, it's, <laughs> that's the story. She ends up in Tucson, and um, she uh, she ends up with, uh, you know, in this relationship with this guy who I think is uh, it's, 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 it just, it fits her, her whole idea of going to Monterey to be a singer. um, Wait, which guy are you talking about? Keitel now? No, I'm talking about Christopherson. Okay. Um, I mean, the idea of her, I mean, I think 
let me re- let me read you this real quick little bit from uh, um, a review by our wonderful uh, esteemed uh, Roger Ebert. Let's see if you can. Let's see if you can get through it. Let's see if it'll work. Um, Martin Scorsese's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore opens with a parody of the Hollywood dream world uh, little girls were expected to carry around in their intellectual baggage a generation ago. The screen is awash with a fake sunset, and a sweet little thing comes strolling along home past sets that seem rescued from The Wizard of Oz. But her dreams and dialogue are decidedly not made of sugar spice or anything nice. This little girl is going to do things her way. I think that's an interesting way that the film starts, because it sets us up for this girl wants to do her thing. And, and what she wants to do is be a singer. Now, now that things haven't been going her way as she's grown up in mid-30s, she's going to get to Monterey. And I love that when you get to the ending, it's this battle for following this dream that we're not, I mean, as the audience of the film, we're not really sure if it's the right thing for her to be doing anyway. You know, she's, she's a, a good singer, but is she, is she star singer quality? Probably not. And and she gets, you know, she has a little job in a bar and all that stuff. But then, you know, she ends up in Tucson and she's this waitress working at Mel's. And the way that the ending comes about where he comes in, uh, Christofferson comes in and says, what the hell? I don't want to, you know, let's, what's stopping you from getting to Monterey? I'll take you there. I don't care about this ranch anyway. It's a great reversal. I really like that reversal, the way that it's like he kind of becomes the one who will follow her. But then you've got that great scene of her with her son afterward, where it's just like, hey, I know I said I'd get you to Monterey, but are you okay if we don't necessarily get there or maybe not as quickly? And it's it's like her kind of acknowledging that um, that her dreams, you know, it's like, trying to pursue these dreams it may just be a dream it may be nothing more than that and i really love that last those last two scenes i think they work really well for me i i think they do too for me uh, although i agree with you they came really really fast and and i guess the problem i i had with it is that um it, it feels a little bit uh a little bit of of a context shock to go from this uh sort of mama bear scene uh, where she so vehemently protected, uh, you know, her son to, you know, the scene of, of forgiveness. I, I just didn't know, you know, Chris Christopher, he was a handsome lad and he had a kicking beard. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, if I could grow a beard like that. I'll bet you, I'll bet you have, a, I'll bet you have a good beard. You have a good beard? It's not that good. It's not Christofferson. It's not that old Christofferson. Good. It's not. It's not. <laughs> Anyhow, he comes in and he's a, he's a little bit smooth talker for me, and that that may be a problem I have with Christofferson. It may be a problem I have with their kind of rapid uh, ascent of their relationship in that last few minutes. But uh, but it does happen a little fast. Um, uh, in well, any think, case, I think that's the script. I, I think it boils down to the screenplay. Now it may be just you know screenplays at the time, but it goes from that low point in the film to all of a sudden we're at the climax and, yeah. and the ending so fast without time to kind of develop. Uh, and, and I mean, I felt like we needed a moment in there to see her um, trying to make a decision. Well, okay, so what am I going to do with myself now um, before he ended up coming back into it? I'm so glad you put it that way. I think I did too. And I think that's the, I, I think that's the challenge of 
developing such a wonderful set piece as the diner and not making effective use of it when it really, really counted, you know, like that's the setting for her to go and look for, you know, maybe it is the, um, maybe it's a sequence with the, or a scene with the, the wise old Vic Tabak, uh, you know, Mel, uh, you know, giving her some little pearl of wisdom to help her frame her mind. Or maybe it's another sequence with the, or scene with the, you know, her, her new, uh, fellow waitress, uh, compatriots. Uh, um, I, I don't know, but the, the, the I think the importance they'd already established a really important relationship between her and Diane Ladd, and they went through, you know, the right beats uh, as she, you know, uh, as at first they didn't like each other, and then they came together, and then they were they were good friends. Uh, you know, why didn't we see more of a relationship with Flo when she really needed it? When we, I think, the audience needed a little bit more breathing room after that climactic kind of battle, um, yeah. before the resolution. So I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, still, I really like the ending. I like the the sort of the walk along the sidewalk and the I can't breathe, mom <laughs> right. kind of moment. It's just a nice way to end it, and it ends it on a a humorous bit on a film that is billed as a as a uh, you know a drama comedy uh, that doesn't have a lot of comedy in it. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of comedy, but it has a lot of just I found natural humor yes just yeah you know, you know if that's if you can call it that yeah yeah no i i agree with you i think it's an interesting it you get the same vibe and i think this this comes off of many of the acquisitions the television acquisitions obviously this was the um the um uh precursor to the long-running uh cbs uh sitcom alice uh, mm-hmm. Though moved to Phoenix uh, uh, with no other uh, actor reprising their role, with the exception of Vic Tabak as Mel, um, and uh, although Diane Ladd and uh, yeah, Diane does she does take over after a little while, right? She, and the son is in, in it. Midway. Alfred Letter came in yeah. in the, the very first episode, but that was it. But uh, um, and uh, you know, it's it, it was you know billed as a funny show, and I think that again is part of why it was a challenge for me to get in to connect with the film early on because my memory of the story is my memory of the diner. Uh, yeah. As a result of my experience with the TV show, and that—that's, uh, I I recognize that as as sort of a shortcoming of what I have seen more recently, uh, but um, it, it was hard because I wanted more diner, I wanted more flow, I wanted more Vera. Oh yeah, um, I grew up I, on this show totally. Was, I really wanted more Mel. Yeah, it was so so much in my uh, childhood that. Uh, it's funny to go back and watch this, and I'm like, "Well, that's not who these yeah. characters are," you know, because I have I have the uh, uh, the different people like Polly Holiday as yes. Flo is like my Polly Holiday. I mean, I love Diane Ladd as Flo, but it's, so it's just funny the different yeah. uh, the differences. But um, well, it's the same vibe you get from watching Mash and then you know seeing the film. Yeah, it, it's it's the, taking a you know what is essentially a drama <laughs> and making it funny. It's you know. Hard. The yeah, and the the um, the funny thing about Mel's Diner is that it's actually there is a Mel's Diner here in Phoenix. And, yeah, uh, it's it was the one, right? Is it the same one that they use for like external yeah, yeah. shots? And Did you eat is, there? 
I I've filmed there in many a time. It's uh it's a they're very film friendly and uh, they work great because it's got a great fifties diner look. So anytime we need to have a period diner, we go to Mel's. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. You want to start talking think, about the people? Yeah, let's talk about the people. Can we, who, who do you want to start with? Well, let's start with Ellen. It's our Ellen. It's uh, our Ellen series. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I love Ellen. She's great. Mm-hmm. You know the the thing about Ellen. She there's a wonderful um, uh, podcast, a very recent interview. Um, what is it? Sex, death, and romance, or death, sex, and money? It's a WNYC, I think, podcast. I'll post a link to the episode in the show notes, and and it's an hour interview with her, uh, and they t- they talk briefly about about her, um, you know, her role, and Alice doesn't live here anymore. And and one of the interesting things they talk about is just her uh, being appreciated as a uh, you know a beautiful woman, and her never seeing herself as a beautiful woman. Um, and that she, you know, she always sort of saw that her mother was the beautiful woman, you know, her mother had the beauty and she was just, she was just sort of, you know, Ellen or Ed, uh, as, as she was born, um, and what was it? Edwin? Edna. Edna Ray Galuli. Right. Um, and, um, so, you know, she had this, I, I think she, she had such a natural way about her. It was, there was nothing uh, about her that seemed uh, at all manufactured. Uh, she was just very, very natural. And I think that's one of the things in this movie that even when she, she dresses herself up to look sexy, right? When she goes out to interview uh, with these very, with these uh, bars up and down the streets of Tucson, the, uh, the, you know, she tries to sex herself up as a, as a sexy lounge singer and, and still, Manages to come off as, uh, even with the perm, as a particularly natural woman. Yeah. I, I think the moment that she's uh, most attractive in the film is actually uh, when she's actually looking her most natural. And it's when she is watching uh, Chris, like, repairing his fence, and the wind is whipping her hair around, and she's mm-hmm. just looking at him. It's like that moment where they that they kind of that falling in love moment between the two of them. And and I'm sure that has something to do with it, but the way the wind is whipping her hair and everything, I mean, it's, she is just very Very natural in that moment. Yeah. There's this natural, amazing natural beauty right there. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. She, um, very strong in that, in that role. Now in this film, she had just done, um, she had just done the exorcist. Right. Um, but was still fairly early in her cinema career. Yes. Well, she'd done in a her, lot in her, of. Yeah, she know. had done a lot of TV, yeah. and she had um, she had started doing TV or uh, movies. Sorry, um, in the '60s, like she started TV in the in the late '50s, and yeah. she started um, jumping into some films as early as '64, as uh, what I have found. But nothing very big, just lots of uh, bit parts and things. And then um, it wasn't until uh, The Last Picture Show mm-hmm. in 1971, uh, when she played Sybil Shepherd's mother, um, Lois Farrow, that really kind of uh, cracked the, uh, um, you know, the, the cinema world open for her. And she was able to uh, jump into doing a lot more. She was nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actress in that film. And uh, from that, she, she um, went on to do another film with the, um, 
the kind of that uh, the same producers, The King of Marvin Gardens, which is another really interesting uh, film that uh, Bob Raffleson directed, and she's great in that one as well. With uh, Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson yeah. and uh, Bruce Dern. And yeah. interesting that she turns around and does, well, a couple of years later, she comes and does this one with Laura Dern. With, uh, or Diane Ladd. And, yes. Well, Laura, Laura Dern, Dern as, Dern, as an uncredited uh, ice cream eating girl. Right, who ate 19 <laughs> ice cream cones to get that scene. Yes, exactly. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, so it's interesting to, to, you know, that this, she was definitely on the, uh, the upswing of her, of her career here. And, and, um, I, I think, you know, this is, uh, I, I haven't actually seen the King of Marvin Gardens. Um, I have seen The Exorcist. The uh, King of Marvin Gardens is, it's good. It's, it definitely is that, um, uh, the, uh, it, it fits that tone of those seventies films. It's a very yeah. kind of this naturalistic feeling story. It's a, you know, it's, it's, uh, as I recall, it's not a uh, an easy uh, film. I think it's a, kind of a little bit of a downer, but but I still really like it. <laughs> Surprise me! <laughs> the thing uh, I uh, you know was this uh, uh, he did five easy pieces, right, Raffleson? Yeah, uh, that's one of my that's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's a great. Hold one. it between your knees. Um. <laughs> uh, Anyhow, so this is a it, it, this comes at kind of an interesting place for her, and again, I, I think it really uh, this this is a film that does does well to ground her uh, in a very sort of human role, um, probably the most approachable role of any of those. I mean, she goes to and again speaking, I, I can't speak of King of Marvin Gardens, but she had done, you know, uh, but but this you can sort of see why she ends up ending, you know, with the Oscar here. Yeah, and it's interesting because all of these, like Last Picture Show, uh, The Exorcist, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, they're all uh, interesting roles for a mother and her child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's know. a good point. Yeah, the Last Picture yeah. Show in particular. That's a that's a even that's even a Requiem one. for a Dream. I mean, yeah. you, you know, the the films we're talking about. It, it's interesting that we ended up picking those ones um, because it's always you know, the way that she's dealing with this relationship with her kid and and how. A uh, a parent deals with that. How a single parent deals with that, and um, and they're very different. I mean, you know, they they all have their protective nature, but they all are, are very different parents. Fascinating. I I had yeah. made that connection. It'll be interesting to watch Requiem for a Dream coming up. Yeah. Uh, again. Definitely. Uh, all right. How about um, uh, who would you like to talk to next? How about Alfred Lutter? Oh, or, or, okay. Wait, wait, wait. I was, was going to say, say Christopherson. Well, I know. I'm just kind of going oh, yeah. down the... This is her family. Sure. Got to talk about the family unit. Sure, absolutely. You know, he's one of those kids. I, I think that uh, they uh, they cast well. He was hard say. to come by. Yes. Uh, hard to come by looking for, um, for a kid that... Uh, uh, for a kid that can sort of stand up to the dialogue and stand up to the banter uh, and stand up to being on street on screen with Ellen. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, he had, uh, I think he was the first kid that actually when, when Scorsese asked her when they were doing kind of a, uh, a casting uh, call uh, to go off book, uh, he was the, the first kid who could actually like, not panic and actually was able to it actually actually 
helped him perform yeah. uh, as he was able to just kind of be himself and just kind of take this character and do something with it. And this comes after a reported 300 boys that Scorsese had had gone through before they found Lutter. Crazy. Yeah, this seems to be a thing with casting kids. I mean, yeah. you really have to look long and hard to find the right kid to uh, play the role. Hmm. Yeah. Hard not to think about episode one when you say that. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Mm-hmm. That's also a lot of kids. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I... What is that movie that he was in? He was in another movie that, uh, you know, I haven't seen, but Who? people say, if you go... Jake Lloyd. Oh, Jake Lloyd, yeah. If you go watch that movie, you'll realize that it wasn't that he was a bad child actor. It's that George Lucas was not a good director. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that too. Yeah. Hmm. Anyhow, uh, so I, I think uh, Alfred Letter really does live up to uh, the demands of the role and the film. And as you, I think you are so right. He is so annoying in this film, just and 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 perfectly annoying, annoying in all the right ways. As a twelve-year-old kid, I mean, he strikes me uh, as a very bright, awkward boy who is so bored with this yeah. place that he is in with his mother that um uh, you know it it makes for such an incredibly strong relationship to me i watch that and that is that is the strongest relationship on screen in this film oh yeah it absolutely is watching him veg out in front of the tv in the dark on the floor uh in one of those early hotel sequences is is it's like i was there because <laughs> i see it in my house <laughs> right i don't see that in my house <laughs> But uh, uh, yeah, he he went on to be in the the Bad News Bear, a couple of the mm-hmm. Bad News Bears movies, and then and now he's a CIO of a computer company. Yeah, don't know which one. Do you know which one? I do not. Hmm. Uh, actually, I, I see Cumulus Media, but I don't know if that's accurate. But hmm. yeah. all right, all right. Now we can talk about your your beau, Christopherson. <laughs> ah, yes, the beard and all. This was early in his acting career. I mean, he was a guy who had been jumping around quite a bit on a lot of different other sorts of things, and he had been doing a lot of uh, of his singing before he started jumping into a lot of this acting um, in the uh, early 70s. And um, his, I mean, I think it was... Um, Pat Garrett and, the Billy, and Billy the Kid that Scorsese had seen, um, he was invited to an early um, screening of that. It was kind of the director's cut before the studio went in and, and uh, uh, had them change it drastically. But um, he saw Christofferson in it and was just like, oh, this, is, this would be the guy to get and ended up talking to him. And, and Christofferson was nervous because he hadn't done, I mean, this was very early in his career. He had done a few other little things um, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid was, uh, I think, probably the the biggest at that time. I mean, he's in Bring Me the Head of Al- Alfredo Garcia, but that's a pretty small role. And then here he is, kind of the uh, the romantic lead in uh, in this film, and and it wasn't quite in his bailiwick. But um, you know, he was convinced by Scorsese, who's got a, a good way with actors and really kind of helps them feel comfortable. And um, and Christofferson said it really, uh, it, he worked really well with Scorsese because Scorsese was able to kind of make him uh, feel comfortable and get into the scene and everything. And, uh, 
really helped him out. And I, I really like him in this. He does have that natural presence always. And it's, there's just something about him that just, it, it, he fits in the role of a, uh, kind of this, um, uh, this rancher, you know, I, I, I don't know. He just, he seems to be that character. Oh, I, I could not agree more. Uh, he, I think he nails that, uh, that sort of new frontiersman, right? That seventies frontiersman, the guy who totally, uh, lives lives on the land but is uh but but you know looks fine in a diner <laughs> uh, right absolutely <laughs> right? uh and i think you know this is the thing that that struck me most is just how well uh christopherson and uh ellen uh make for a couple yeah you know like i found their their on-screen pairing really believable and and quite charming uh in you know and i i think they they sort of rode that roller coaster really well it it's a little bit frustrating that it happens you know kind of so late in the film i i found myself wanting more of it and wanting to see them explore more of that relationship i think as a result it moves pretty quickly um even though you know i recognize this is very much her story um but uh but i did find their their partnership great yeah it, it works really nicely and like i said that scene when when she's kind of uh falling in love with him while he's fixing his fence i mean it's equally like that is such a beautiful moment in the film because just the way that they're interacting and falling for each other i mean it works really well on both their parts i think it does too the the part that really strikes me though the sequence that i find more even more charming than that is when he pulls up the truck and he comes in, doesn't say a word. He leans over to uh, uh, to uh, the, the boy and, and whispers something, and they go outside, and she's watching all the while as they're doing something. He climbs up on the truck, comes back in, and and asks to uh, if he can go. There's a horse. He says, he has a horse. I can ride. Mom, I got to go. I'm so bored. Please let me go ride the horse. Let me go ride the horse. <laughs> and runs outside as, as she looks at him and says, that's a dirty trick. And they right. have that smile uh, and that little charming exchange that for me is that was the moment where they fell in love right there is is um, is right in, in that, you know, five seconds. Yeah. Uh, and I just I love it. That is another great moment. Yeah. I do love that moment, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shall we talk about the uh, uh, who do you want to talk about next? The waitresses? Yeah, Diane Ladd. Mm-hmm. Um, the, another of my favorite moments in the film is the moment when when Alice and Flo are sitting outside and sunbathing. Yes. Um, not not only because it's a great sequence, but because it's really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's such a beautifully shot scene. I, it's just amazing how uh, simply Scorsese chose to shoot that. And in a way where it dismisses the environment and it becomes this moment where it's like we're in their heads with them almost where we can pretend we're on the beach with them. Yes. Yes. And and it's, it's, it's so beautiful and it's just such a great moment between these two who initially started almost uh, as adversaries because uh, Alice just couldn't connect with Flo. I mean, Flo kind of, is a little brash and and starts off on the wrong foot by uh, by being a little uh, overbearing and the way that she is commenting on Alice in the in the uh, the bar initially, but uh, I mean in the bar in the, in the diner initially, and um, but Diane Ladd, I uh, I really uh, she she always has struck me as a this sort of uh, uh, 
performer. Like she does well in these uh, these sharp tongued sorts of characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe that's why I think she works really well as Flo. And as much as I do love Polly Holiday in the TV version of Flo, Diane Ladd is. Uh, uh, I like the hard edge nature that she brings to Flo. It works really well in the film. I I couldn't agree more. I think uh, uh, you know they do a great job of uh, you know contrasts in pretty much all the sequences. I mean, this is a, a great film of contrast, but all the sequences with the waitresses, I think, are um, are, are wonderful exercises in contrast. Where, for example, the sequence where they're you know they're sunbathing, they right. start with this this close up and they're. Their faces are in parallel, so you know you're sort of looking at both of their faces in relief, and uh, Diane Ladd's is slightly ahead, so they're, they're it, it, it looks like they're on the side of a vase. You know, I mean, it's it is just really beautiful, and like you said, very simple. And we get to see this whole sequence until they pull out for essentially this great reveal where the two ladies are sitting on you know lounge chairs in the middle of a dirt street in an old dark alley. So <laughs> you're a bright, I should say, bright sunlit alley, and you know, and it's it's uh, it's just terribly dirty it absolutely contrasts with the the visual beauty of the rest of the scene you know so simple so straight um you know really restrained by scorsese who spends a lot of his time with the camera moving around an awful lot you know a lot of handheld and and um you know almost sort of documentarian uh but in this sequence it's so simple and it contrasts so wonderfully with that reveal um I think with the waitresses in particular, they have these wonderful emotional moments and they have these great moments that are, are so sweet and so touching and so loving. And yet they take place in a back alley toilet. Um, you know, and I, I think that lends to kind of the budding strength of their relationships together. And I, that just, I, I think they play it so very well. Yeah, you bring up the the, the toilet scene, which is another uh, great moment between the two of them. When yeah. When she's talking to her, and and that's a, another great moment with the Diane Ladd and just talking about this cross and, that she made out of uh, um, um, safety uh, pins. Pin, the safety pins, yeah. That um, it's it's just this great little uh, kind of character moment that she uh, adapted into this uh, into this role that uh, it just helps build this character all the more. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I just I, I feel like the writer. Um, I, I mean, I don't know how much of it came through in the script, but I mean, obviously some of it was there. So I think he, he uh, tapped into writing these characters well. And then I think you put Ellen and Diane into these roles and they just find ways to inhabit them and build them and create these uh, just indelible characters that work really well. Uh, how about uh, Valerie Curtin as Vera? And that's another one that I think is just... Uh, <laughs> I mean, talk about comedy. You know, that's that's a role that brings some of the the comedy into it because it's it it seems a slightly unrealistic, but it, in the comedy vein where it works really well. Of course, Vera plays the worst waitress ever. Right. Uh, in, so in it's a marvel film. that uh, Mel hasn't gotten rid of her yet. <laughs> Oh, it, it really is, and she uh, she just nails it. The, the first time we see, or I think it, the uh, speaking of contrasts again, you know, here we have this wonderful sensitive moment between Diane Ladd and Ellen Burstyn in the toilet. We have uh, Mel uh, screaming, you know, where are you? things are going crazy uh, out there? And we don't actually see quite how crazy they're going until late in the sequence. Uh, we have it starts off with Vera, who's doing this like weird. Uh, 
plate shuffle. She's not able to to really keep up with anything, and eventually, the it it leads to a full on revolt uh, in the diner uh, that is. It, it's so brief and yet and and so uh, you know like you said so unbelievable and yet somehow in the context of these women and this weird this weird diner environment it it fits right in hand to glove that is the moment that i bet some tv executive said look at that we can make a sitcom out of that <laughs> exactly i i would be surprised if uh if if there isn't a story about how uh vera's role in this film didn't somehow directly lead to that sitcom yeah right it was i mean she provides so much of that and it's almost like silent comedy like she is such a great uh physical uh actress in terms of of her delivery of really subdued comedy it's just really subtle yeah loved it loved it loved it and it's also just it's 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 just strange the way that um, she's almost like not present sometimes. Like right. uh, when Tommy uh, knocks her, uh, bumps into her, and she loses her place in her book, and then he goes sits down and screams about how bored he is. She goes over and gives him her book, and and I can't remember what the book is, but I mean she's reading a book. It's clearly not a picture book, but she's like, here you can you can, <laughs> you can color, color it in. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, but but I, I think that the you know most interesting part of that sequence is not just that she loses her place in the book, but that she throws a, a plate full of food on the ground, and the first thing she comes back to is here you can look at my book. Right. <laughs> there is no acknowledgement by her that she just threw a plate of food on the ground. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was really 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 good. Yes. How about yes. Vic Tabak? He's Mel. I mean, I, you know, he's he's this guy who's just like I know he's had this career and he's done all this other appearances and all these things, including Star Trek. Yeah, he will always be Mel, and that's it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, and that's you know, it's sad, uh, but he was he's just really good. He is. He's. He is that I mean, guy who on. runs a diner. Bullet and Papillon and I just the guy who's he's got. Look at this. IMDb's got 146 credits, and yet he's still Mel. Yeah. T.J. Hooker. <laughs> um, he is. Uh, he. Uh, you know. He brought that hat. Did you see the story of the hat? I did the cap. Sorry, the hat. So he's he is known. Uh, you know, he's, he wears this iconic white cap uh, in the film, right. and that's a that's a they. It is called the, in the navy. It's called the white cap, and he was in the navy, and and he he brought that little character bit uh, to the show. Uh, he defiles it on his own head in the show, and and um, that is a sign of. Uh, it, it, as the story goes, he had the hat when he you know he and his fellow. Uh, Cooks in the Navy had wore that hat. That was his, you know, one of his, the roles he played in the Navy. And so they wore their hats, and and after a long hot day in the kitchen, they'd start to roll up the sides of the hat and violate the very strict um, uh, dress code of the white cap. 
and uh, he brought that to the show and was apparently very proud of being able to uh, to bring that hat and that you know that little bit of his personal history to that character of Mel in the show. And I, I you know, I you see that hat, you take that hat off his head, and you know he's back in Hawaii five zero. Um, right, right. But uh, as soon as you put that hat on, the white T-shirt, he's Mel through and through. Iconic. Yep. It is totally iconic. Mm-hmm. So funny. Uh, who else is important to you? Well, it's nice to see Jodie Foster in an early appearance. Wow. Although I, I've got to say, it's a really weird performance, and I, it's not one that sticks in my head. And, uh, you know, other than she says weird a lot. <laughs> weird, weird, weird. She, weird. you know, this character of Audrey, I, you know, it, that's an interesting, speaking of awakenings, you know, we talk about this whole film being a film of awakenings. The the awakening that happens between, uh, you know, Audrey and Tommy is another really interesting one where Audrey, you know, essentially is, uh, you know, she's the bad influence and she takes him and gets him drunk. Um, this This after he's actually kicked out of the car by his mother, so there are right. all sorts of bad decisions along the way. Yeah, yeah. But but eventually ends in in uh, non-trivial amounts of regret uh, as Tommy gets drunk in the hands of Aubrey uh, or Audrey and um, and and goes to prison. But he, you know, we get to see prison. <laughs> he goes to <laughs> prison. This twelve-year-old goes to prison. <laughs> he goes to the police station uh, for for a spell and uh and gets very very sick and throws up on himself and and you know we get to see i mean that's a that's early for an awakening like that but it somehow is not uh out of out of context in this environment and and audrey clearly uh, is a girl beyond her years right i think right. jodie foster plays it very well predictably well she was a wonderful child actress and played dark uh exceedingly well uh for her age yeah, she she balanced it pretty well between the uh, early Disney films that she did and this and Taxi Driver. Ta- that's right, Taxi Driver. God, oh, good grief. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, interesting because she's in this role, right? And one of the, you know, one of the stories from um and and I guess it's because this is this girl was a little bit you know young, but one of the challenges that Scorsese had in uh, you know was with young Alice Mia Bendixson. Um, because he got in a big fight with a welfare worker, uh, shooting the opening sequence. Did you see this one? Mm-mm. They had built this set, this um, sort of the Wizard of Oz set, uh, for eighty five thousand dollars, and had spent days building the set. And what they needed uh, was this kid to come in and say, uh, "Blow it out your ass." But the welfare worker threw a fit and said, you can't have this child say that line. You can't have, you, you just can't have this child say that line. You can't, that's got to, you've got to strike that. And he says, I'm not going to strike that. I can't strike that. Um, that's like why we built this set. It is so important. And, it, you know, having this young Alice say that line to set up her character for the rest of the film, we have to say that line. And the, the welfare worker said, you can't have her say that line. That's it. It's over. Well, the uh, they went on and shot it a few more times, and as it turns out, the first time they had her say those lines, they were rolling the film, and that ends up being the take that they go with. Uh, 
So they went with it anyway, but that was a one take kind of a thing. It was the first take on the first, you know, walk on that set. Uh, and, um, you know, just lucky that the welfare worker hadn't read the script first. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, but I find it so interesting that they have that trouble with the welfare worker here in this opening sequence, and Jodie Foster <laughs> is sitting here, you know, kind of uh, doing the uh, uh, giving the performance that she gives. She's a little bit older than young Alice uh, by a couple of years, and so I probably gets away with more. But uh, I just find it a, a very interesting, you know, that they get upset about some things with children, but not some others. Yeah. Right. Makes you wonder how often those welfare workers are actually on set. On set, right? Yeah, that was that's a good question. Pay attention to these things. Somebody was distracted at the craft service table, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying, you know, welfare service workers are heavy. <laughs> no, no, never. <laughs> Stop. Uh, okay. Uh, who else do we want to talk about? Anybody else on the in the cast that's important to you? Well, Harvey Keitel is definitely oh, uh, important to talk yes. about. Um Boy, I tell you, I mean, you know, early Scorsese, he he fits right in there with, uh, you know, the early Scorsese world. I mean, he really uh, was uh, kind of a key part of Scorsese's early work. And it's nice to see him here. And it's amazing how he goes from a character who is so nice. And you're like, okay, this is a nice guy. I could totally see her with this guy. To one of the most frightening characters um, that he's played. I mean, I really think that Ben is a, a, just a terrifying character. Because of that contrast. Again, yes. because he goes so far so fast. And he's not yeah. in the film very long, you know. He's in oh. just in this one little sequence. Uh, but but when he comes to the house, and, and I think I may have a sensitivity to this anyway. Like, I, I feel like I have a natural sensitivity to somebody, like, you know, violating a home, but because the of the way they place the camera down that long sort of lateral wall toward the front door, which is made of way too much glass, frankly, yeah, uh, it it makes for a very haunting, terrifying invasion uh, as he comes to to threaten these women. It's it's horrifying, and his little speech that he gives her, uh, you know, I, well, it, I mean, first of all, Ellen is. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, as great as she is through her performance and the relationships, her, the way that she plays the terror mm -hmm. in that scene when he's confronting her and just the look on her face as she is trying to kind of please him so that, uh, you know, as far as like, yes, I'll still get together with you tonight, that whole thing. I mean, that's, that's, you know, true uh, acting chops right there. I mean, it's pretty pretty powerful to watch that. I mean, she's just uh, does it so well and he is so frightening there. And then the little bit with the scorpion about, you know, you know, you don't mess with it or it's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, I, I then, believe that. And then, uh, you know, she messed with it right after setting up the equation. If you mess with the scorpion, it will kill you. And you know, she just messed with it, right? That threat, that implied threat is it, it's made so much more terrifying and yeah. he, oh, just shaking and sweating. Scary dude. Yeah, yeah he was, he's good. He's mm. good. He hasn't worked with uh, Scorsese in a long time, though, has he? Gosh. No, because all these other, all these early movies were, were 70s. Uh, what else did he do? Anything in the... <clears throat> 
No, I got I, yeah, it's it's been a long time. It has been a very long time since they've worked together. Yeah. Yeah. They should work together Interesting. again. Yeah. Interesting. Uh okay. Uh, interestingly enough, Ellen Burstyn had a TV show in the uh, mid-80s called The Ellen Burstyn Show. It only lasted one season, but Harvey Keitel was in that. He was the guest. Mm-hmm. You didn't happen to look it up, did you? No. I didn't. I didn't see it. But it'd be, I, I had no memory until uh, I saw that in her credits list that she even had a television show. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um. There's nobody well, I, else that really strikes me as the only other person that I think we should talk about is Scorsese. Well, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, what do you think of early early Scorsese? Well, this is a really interesting one. I mean, it's it doesn't fit his body of work that well. I mean, you know, interesting coming off the Coen Brothers series and talking about their comedy versus their their drama and how you look at something like Raising Arizona and it it seems to fit because they keep going back and forth so much. Scorsese never really went back and did other films that really focused on women in his career. I mean, he certainly had, you know, New York, New York, uh, had kind of that romantic uh, love story going on. But this one really focused on women and he never touched on that again. Um, I, I don't know, Age of Innocence maybe? I guess you could. Uh, I guess you could say in that film it does, but yeah. uh, to me it still seemed like uh, Daniel Day Lewis's uh, story. I, I I feel like he really has. Um, it's 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 an interesting little um, footnote in his career that I think is. Uh, um, I think a solid film that he made. I mean, Ellen Burstyn when she was interviewing him as a director, she said, "Well, what do you know about women?" And he said. Nothing, but I want to learn. Um, uh, so uh, she felt that that was the right attitude. He, this is a smart guy who wants to, you know, he, he's a storyteller. He wants to take on new and different things. And he never went back to really focus on a story of female characters. But I think he did really good in this role for this film. I do. I find it so interesting just, you know, not necessarily looking at what, you know, at his choices, you know, to or not to uh, take on films that are, you know, primarily led by, you know, female characters. But this, um, but the grit that he brings, the Scorsese-ness that he brings to this film, uh, you know, you mentioned early on that that uh, one of the things that Burston did not like about the the original script was that it was too slick, uh, that it was it was too um, you know I think she she said it was too uh, Rock Hudson um, for for her and she wanted something with more grit and I boy can you feel uh, what Scorsese brought to this film of his own sort of natural instincts that grit that dirt that that heat. Uh, that sort of, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that generally the camera work, you know, is very sort of, you, you, you see some really interesting, um, and dynamic movement with the camera and what is otherwise a, such a human film, but the follow shots, you know, the standing up and following, you know, Ellen through the house, you know, feeling like they have, they have really compressed these spaces even further by making the camera movement feel, uh, so constrained and yet always orbiting you know, the, the primary character in a sequence, I think is, it ends up being really, um, uh, powerful. 
there's some and some great moments also where she's uh, playing on the piano and it's moving around her, circling yeah. around her and stuff. And so, yeah, I, I completely agree. It it uh, it's uh, it still has it may be a toned down level of that alive camera movement, but it's definitely still there, and I, it definitely still feels like Scorsese had his hand in it. And you can you can feel like you get a sense with you take Scorsese out of it, you can see what the film would have been, right? You can sort of feel the, you know, I, right. I can see what this could have. It's sort of a cookie cutter, you know, static kind of, you know, uh, kind of visual. Uh, but but no, you this is this feels as much like a Scorsese film as you know as does Mean Streets or Color of Money or you know, etc. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the Scorsese. I do too. I do too. And uh, then he went on. He went on to do your favorite after this. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know. You know, I do. I, I mean, I do. I, I like Scorsese, but I don't like all Scorsese. Yeah. At least we can see how he put Jodie Foster to work. You know, if you can do Alice, (laughs) I got some ideas. (laughs) How would you like to play a hooker? (laughs) He is the most nominated living director right now. He's been nominated for Best Director eight times thus far. Wow. Yes. He's, uh, um, and he's won once? He's won once for The Departed. Yeah. The Departed. Yeah. Hmm. Crazy. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Golden Globes have been kinder to him. Yeah. Yeah. It's a. Uh, it's one of those things. Uh, yeah. There. There. There's always the argument about uh, 1980 and Raging Bull and why he didn't win that year. But yeah. oh well. Yeah. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? All right. Anybody else you want to talk about specifically? No, I think that's it. That's the that's that's the hot stuff for this film. Yes, for me. indeed. Good film. Good way to start yeah. off. I'm glad we're starting out of order. I, I am like too. I, easing I, into the bursting. Yes, this is a this is a great one. It uh, well, and I think this is just for Ellen Burstyn. I think this is uh, really such an iconic film uh, in her career because uh, because of everything it represents for her and for uh, this story about a woman. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Yeah. I think we should talk about some numbers. Yeah, let's do it. How'd it do? It, it did, uh, you know, it did well for itself. I mean, this film, from what I found, cost about $1.2 million to make. Um, that's about $5.6 million in today's dollars. And it ended up making, uh, let's see, about, uh, you know, it, it made about $21 million. So I mean that's a that's yeah. a nice little markup there, and that's adjusted about all, almost a hundred million dollars that it made when it uh, when you boil down to profit per finished minute adjusted it's about eight hundred and forty thousand dollars per finished minute. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's number fifty on our list. So it's uh, yeah, it made money and it kept that Scorsese working. Where is? Do you know if there's a similar like uh, box office mojo like? Uh, budget site for television series television series is really uh the budgets for those are really elusive hmm. i just what yeah. about like grosses like in let's just say in syndication 
I wonder which uh, which was more profitable. The TV show, I you know, I I'm, don't know. I I have uh, such a hard time finding uh, television information. Me too. I know nothing about it. I I really know nothing about entertainment television, so I have a hard time figuring that out. But I'd be interested to know over the total run, they did two hundred and two episodes of that show. I have to imagine that it made more money than the than the movie did. When it ran as long as that one ran, nine years. Nine right? years. I'd say that it's a uh, that probably uh, ended up uh, banking a little I more. Was, I was going to make some crack about sequels, but then I realized it sort of got a sequel. Yeah. Right. Very profitable. That was that was the whole story I was going to tell. I'm going to give up on that one though. All right. I think we should rank it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Head over to the Flickchart, everybody. Uh, Flickchart.com slash the next reel. And uh, you can see if our favorite movies line up with your favorite movies. And let's see if Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore breaks the top 67. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's see. Alice <laughs> Doesn't Live Here Anymore or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. And it's not in the top 67. Okay. <laughs> Alice doesn't live here anymore or at the adventures of Baron Munchausen. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard decision for you? Well, it's it's Baron Munchausen, but you know, I'll, I'll still go with Alice. I, I think, yeah. Alice doesn't live here anymore or Pale Rider. Pale Rider. Yes, Pale Rider. Alice doesn't live here anymore, or the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. <laughs> I, I'll say Alice. <laughs> I'll say Buckaroo. Will ya? Mm-hmm. Pretty okay. firmly. All right. I think we need to. I think we need to run off. Let's do it. All right. Ready? Yep. One, One two, two, three. Rock. One, One two, three. Scissors. Rock. Oh. Crush you. All right, buckaroo. <laughs> Alice doesn't live here anymore or red belt. I'll do Alice. Um, I'm on the fence, so I will give you Alice. All right. There we go. Alice doesn't live here anymore or splash. I will do splash. <laughs> <laughs> I will also give you out of great generosity... <laughs> Splash. <laughs> You're a giver. I'm a giver. All right. That puts us at 116 out of 161. All right. It's a good film. It's yes, worth it seeing. Definitely is a good film. But that feels uh, that feels about right, and I think my wife would agree with that placement. Probably good. for different reasons. <laughs> uh. <laughs> This is a good way to start, and so we've already we've already teased where we're going from here. Uh, give us a, a little bit of a preview of uh, The Exorcist. <laughs> Can you do any of the roles? Can you help out a poor altar boy, Father? <laughs> How's that? Yes, you can. <laughs> Oh, well done. <laughs> I didn't expect that. So we're doing The Exorcist. <laughs> and uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty excited about that, which was done uh, before this film. But I think it... it uh, what are you looking forward to? About? That's what I want to hear. What are you looking forward to about The Exorcist? Uh, just pretty much everything. It's one of my favorite horror films. It's uh, I think it's rock solid uh, and terrifying and, and really... 
kind of just unique in the in the storytelling style that they went with for this horror. Uh, Friedkin, I think, is speaking of going back to the 70s, uh, really had a good sense of that naturalistic vibe. Uh, look at French Connection, look at The Exorcist, uh, look at Sorcerer, anything he did in the 70s. I think he really uh, tapped into that very well. And I think um, there's something about this film that uh, is just always just so downright creepy. Truly. Truly, truly. Very much looking forward to it. So that's next week. Um, until then, I gotta go to bed. Alright, I'm gonna head down to Mel's and grab a burger. Carolyn and uh, she writes if you like to hear dysfunctional people screaming and yelling at each other constantly arguing and a woman volunteering to be a victim of abuse for herself and her son you'll love this movie the kid kid is very irritating constantly complaining and whining but we have to remember that he never had proper adult role models in his life his stepdad verbally abused him while his mom did nothing to stop it. And his mom was a complete airhead who had no idea what it took to be a nurturing parent. The restaurant scenes were just as bad. Disgusting. And scene. As in the restaurant was disgusting? I don't, it looked pretty clean to me. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, there was a, I don't know what was disgusting. But there were, apparently there were some elements that were arguably disgusting. That's funny. But it sounds like a recommendation if you like dysfunctional people screaming at each other. Yeah. Uh, this is the movie for you. Volunteering for abuse. You will love this movie. So take it How from funny. Reader Carolyn. Well, my Amazon review is by Gloria J. Williams, quote, Chris Glow is her nickname, mm-hmm. who only gave it two stars. She said she was disappointed with this one. I should have known. Filmed in 1974, it has nothing to offer. That's, that's pretty harsh back. <laughs> 1974. Uh, I just watched it on Turner Classic Movies. Everyone is praising this film. How come? It is a dreary account of a widow trying to get to Monterey, California to be a singer. Her 12-year-old son is a spoiled, obnoxious, foul-mouthed brat, and she is so naive. It is ridiculous. She does absolutely nothing to parent her son. The problem being she is trying to be his friend, not his mother, which would not be typical behavior of a woman of her generation. It was disgusting. I will not be buying this one. I do not recommend it to anyone unless it is to show how not to bring up a child. So apparently she thought it was disgusting too. Yeah, well, she apparently has something against films made in 1974. Yeah. 1974 of Is that a thing? It is now. Hmm. Wow. Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. 
and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.